This is a becoming creature. Hello, and welcome to another episode of A Becoming Creature. If you like this episode, please subscribe on becomingcreature.substack.com. On this episode, I speak to Ray about comfort play, egregores. We explore rhythm, intimacy, and violence. Ray talks about the value of Sufism and experiencing romance with God. And we talk about how you can begin to develop a love that is truly universal. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Nick, and I'm here with my guest, Ray, also known as Forshaper on Twitter. How you doing, Ray? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing excellently. I've, uh, I've had a wonderful day. I no work today, and it's beautiful. Walk with my dog. That was extremely pleasant. But, uh, but tell me a little bit about yourself. We interact all the time, but I don't know that much about you, and I, I'm eager to learn, you know, what did you do this year? How have you been spending your 2020? So I took COVID-19 as a sign to follow more of what I perceive to be my path and to do things less for stability. And part of that is quitting my job about 34 months ago now in order to pursue this nonprofit that I started that's focused on strengthening communities and Obviously, I can't actually do a lot of that in person anymore, but um, over Zoom, there's there's actually a lot of activities that we've found that, that does work uh, in video, even though they don't work as well in person. Can you talk about how you are trying to strengthen communities? Uh, like in what way, in what way are you contributing? So I'm focused on trust because when I looked at what makes groups tick, what makes teams tick, I kind of realized that the biggest predictor was the ability for each individual to predict all the other individuals within the group. And to do that, you need a lot of empathy. And for that empathy to exist in the first place, there needs to be trust. So I've been focusing on figuring out how to improve trust in general. Interesting. So how do you improve trust? Like uh, the what I'm picturing is a knowledge component where people learn how other people work in a way that is intuitive for them to fall back on, but also maybe some exercises for people to interact and develop a level of comfort. So what's what does that actually look like? Yeah, so I'm actually glad that you used the word comfort because I used to study under this theater actress, and she introduced an exercise to me called the comfort play. And her first name is Kelly. Her last name is skipping me at the moment, but I'm sure that if you ever asked around, you would find out that there is a professor at the University of Idaho named Kelly who came up with these things called comfort plays. And in the comfort play, you have a dyad, two people, and one person spends all their time giving, mm -hmm. and the other person spends all their time receiving. 
typically this is like either five, 15, 20 minutes you spend doing nothing but giving or receiving. Is that like a communication giving and receiving? Like a, is it like there's one listener and one speaker? Uh, what's the dynamic? So it is like that, except nonverbal. So there's no words. It actually looks at the end when the exercise is done, it actually looks like you're looking at a room full of people on MDMA. <laughs> However, they're sober. So after one person is done giving to another person, they switch um, and they have a, a similar timed session. And then after that, they have a session where they both give and receive. And it's at this point where it might just look like two people like cuddling really hard and staring into each other's eyes. Wow. But what it manifests like in the beginning is kind of it's kind of different for, for each pair. You know, some people might massage each other. Others might uh, just look into each other's eyes. Others might just, just kind of sit next to each other and be in each other's presence. It kind of depends the dynamic between the two people. Wow, that's incredible. So it's so what's being given is, would you say it's it's an emotional giving? Yeah, it's kind of stretching to figure out what the other person needs emotionally in that moment and the best way to express it without words. So when they're doing this giving, it seems to me like they're exercising acceptance. They're kind of being given a place where they can express themselves emotionally and kind of edge into an area of um, discomfort maybe. And as the other person just accepts them and accepts them and accepts them, it allows them to explore the boundaries of their emotions that in regular interaction, they, they have no freedom to explore. Yes, exactly. And that's, that's part of why sometimes another thing that I didn't mention is that you might have some, some pairs kind of just crying wow. together. That sounds extremely powerful. I've never heard of this. That's like, it's kind of blowing my mind. How many people are in this group and how, how common is this? So for the acting program at the University of Idaho, all, all the people on the uh, acting path, I guess, go through this exercise before they actually do any acting assignments often. So, and I think for the ones that are specifically acting majors, they might have a semester where they do this like every, every week or periodically throughout mm. the semester, kind of as a, as a check-in. And this becomes sort of the, the basis for their later work. Um, so before they even start, you know, memorizing parts and so on and so forth, they do this. That's so great. And so this nonprofit you're doing, you're trying to introduce this to more people and pull it out of acting and bring it to people in real life as, as a form of, of developing personal comfort and exploring one's emotions in the real world, not just in this education system. Yes. So exercises like this, this is just the one that sort of impacted me the most when I, when I encountered it, but just like acting has this exercise, many other areas have exercises or practices or rituals like this. And, you know, there are dozens, you know, maybe hundreds now that I've encountered. And so I'm kind of pulling them and applying it to specifically improving trust 
and I can't go to like a customer service representative team and be like, yeah, just stare into each other's eyes yeah. for, for half an hour. That's not going to work. Yeah, that's a difficult practice. And it's almost like a gym, right? Everybody talks about like mental health is meditating. And they talk about how physical health is exercising and dieting. But a lot of people have no idea you can exercise your emotions in a way that is not coercing yourself to behave a certain way around certain people, around coworkers, around family. So this sounds like an incredible opportunity. And uh, even just picturing myself doing it, it sounds scary, um, but also very cathartic. Yes, I do think there's something fundamentally freeing about these practices. I actually think a cool thing about this practice is realizing that it kind of exists in slightly different ways throughout very many different cultures. There mm. is a Sufi practice called, I, I want to say it's Sobat, but I'm actually not sure if that's the what, what it's exactly called. Mm -hmm. I think it also translates to something like conversation or discourse. And when I read descriptions of this practice, it sounds very similar. That's awesome. So there's some history to this practice. And uh, so you're, you're kind of bringing it to the modern age. And it sounds almost like a, it's, a, it's a secular bent so that more people can do it. And it's so that it's, it's kind of um, taken away from the religious foundations alone in the same way that that's been done for meditation, right? Like meditation um, has existed in various forms for various religions, but now in the West, we've, we've made it its own thing. Uh, that sounds really incredible. I'm going to take a left turn here and ask you about something that I don't know a lot about, but you talk often about egregores, which I think is the proper pronunciation. So you talk a lot about egregores. So in your profile, for instance, you say, uh, when an egregore looks at me, I gaze long into the egregore. And you have a tweet that says, know that every time you cringe, that is, the cringe is what is on top of your hierarchy of feelings in a moment. It's a good indicator that an egregore is acting directly through you. Now, the way I understand egregores a little bit is that they're kind of like top-level memes. They're a mimetic structure that exists outside of any one individual, um, kind of in the Jungian way where Jung says people don't have ideas, ideas have people. That's what I think when I think of an egregore, but you seem to be talking about it in, in some specifically powerful way when you talk about when you cringe, um, it's the egregore acting through you. Because I would think of a cringe as a negative affect that one attaches to a memory or something like that. So can you explain to me a little bit about what an egregore means to you and what, what do you mean when you're talking about cringe here? So when I say egregore, I simply mean collectives, human collectives. Uh, I use the word egregore because I think in our current individualist society, we often discount the amount of impact that the groups that we are a part of have on us. And, and this includes groups that have existed for hundreds or thousands of years. I may have a thought that now I can probably kind of identify as coming from some group of people hundreds of years ago, but usually when that happens, I'm not going to attribute it that way. And so I use the term 
egregore partially to highlight the fact that the impact is actually much higher than I think a lot of us are willing to admit. And egregore in this way, like it's, I think, too reductive to say every group is an egregore, right? But what you're saying is that there are these kind of shadowy, powerful interactions between groups that people are ignoring. And that if we wake into this or we become aware of this, then it's it's kind of Jungian to me because, right? Because like uh, Jung said that uh, we're controlled by the things that we're not aware of within ourselves. So by becoming aware of these egregores, we can recognize what they're doing to us and then perhaps take action. Yes, exactly. So not every group is an egregore, but the strongest groups would be. Mm. I also believe that humans are intrinsically better at thinking in in social terms than any other terms. So it pays to inform my intuition to think of groups in an anthropomorphic way, and egregores help do that. There's this task in logic called the Wasson selection task, and you're basically given some cards and a logical puzzle, and typically most parts of the population do not solve that puzzle at all. However, it's kind of a way to, to, to gauge your ability in, in formal logic, in fact, or basic formal logic. But if you frame it as uh, whether some people under 21 can be allowed to drink or not at a bar, most people suddenly pass that and solve that problem easily. So with that as an example, I kind of believe that framing things socially tends to make it easier for us to model these uh, Mm. dynamics. And so that's another reason why I use the term egregore. Very interesting. I'm learning a lot here. I have a question about uh, a tweet you wrote, which you said that thinking that one needs to be worthy of romance is like a a broken idea. And that uh, the more woke idea is that you want to be worthy of an enemy. And you talk a little bit about um, about conflict and about violence. And I was wondering, like, why is being a worthy enemy uh, a su- superior idea? What relationship do you have with, with violence and with conflict and all these things? I've kind of come to the conclusion that it's actually very hard to sustain hate in a way that goes against what your egregore would have you do. So if, if a group of people has some sort of faceless enemy, that's kind of easy to sustain, but it's actually hard to sustain some sort of conflict directly with another individual human. And you know, if you get into the sort of relationship where you're really angry at someone and you assign them the blame for a lot of bad things that happen in your life, but then you continue like looking them in the eye, that turns out, I think, to be a relationship that's much closer to a parent or family than being a classic enemy. So that if you actually engage in a relationship with someone that's similar to 
being an enemy is in, in popular culture, then you would find that they would actually become an inextricable part of you. Uh, because the level of attention that happens in violence, I think, is, is very similar to the level of attention that happens in sex. And so if you share that kind of attention with someone, it ties you together in a very deep way. Wow. Yeah. So it's extremely intimate yes. to be struggling with somebody. Yes. That makes that makes a lot of sense. And they're both both sex and fighting are a kind of dance and flow. And there's obviously a power dynamic. But yeah, I, as a as you're saying that, it makes a lot of sense to me that they're so similar. Um, so do you have any experience with violence and fighting? What is your experience with conflict in that way? So uh, I grew up partially in Southeast Asia and over there mm -hmm. among children. Actually, when I, when I study it now, it does seem to be the case that everywhere in the world, violence is most common among children than it is among any other age group. But over there, it, it was kind of much more normal to beat people up or get beaten up. So basically, my, my experience with violence is that I got beaten up a lot. <laughs> wow. I think I had this attitude of being like somehow a peaceful person and uh, better mm -hmm. than everyone because of it. And that definitely invited some violence my way. At the same time as this was happening, I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian household that was mm -hmm. uh, explicitly pacifist, but they, you know, my parents would lose their cool fairly often. And uh, they kind of beat me every day. I'm sorry. So there's this That's rough contrast or contradiction between being pacifist, but then clearly showing that violence is their answer. So you come from a history of violence and you have a familiarity with the violence. Would you say that you know a lot more about human nature or about yourself due to that background? Or do you think someone's better off living a completely pacifistic bringing? So I think uh, and this goes generally for, for any moral claims. If someone is able to do whatever they're doing, then I think they should do what that is, no matter what that is. So if if a pacifist lifestyle is working for them, then they should continue doing it unless they are somehow upset by it. I do find that it uh, it seems to have taught me a lot about human nature, including my own, that I would never have expected I did think of myself as a pacifist for the, the longest time mm -hmm. until I was uh, 25 and I, I punched someone in the face for, for almost like no reason. It was actually a similar reason, I think, to why I used to get hit when I was a kid, which was like a sort of, it was a feeling that he was engaging in some sort of soft conflict because he was he was making a joke at a time when I was trying to wash dishes. Uh, and we had been out in the field for for three days without, you know, a lot of food, um, without a lot of sleep. So that was definitely part of it. However, that the violence ultimately came from me. And mm -hmm. I think I was like, possibly the most shocked about it after I'd done it, that I was capable of this. But that kind of turned part of my world 
upside down when it happened. And so the cycle of discovery and acceptance that came from that is kind of still running today. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Shortly after that, I kind of entered a combatives tournament, which is the, the army's light version of MMA. And I had no training at all, Uh, but I just decided that this is what I was going to do. Yeah, that's pretty brave. (laughs) Um, I got my ass kicked, but it was definitely an interesting experience. And I sort of dropped it for a while, but I picked it back up um, this year, actually. I just wanted to ask you about the situation where you lashed out. Um, I have two questions. So you said you weren't eating and you'd been out, out on the land. What's that about? Like, what was, what was going on? Why weren't you eating? And why were you um, out in nature? And the second thing was, did you feel threatened at the time before you lashed out? Or do you think it was more of a like an anger? So I was in military training in a swamp. And uh, the way that works is basically every couple of weeks or every couple of months or whatever, you go into nature somewhere and spew a bunch of uh, gasoline out and uh, blow some stuff up and do war games for um, the officers ahead of you, you know, you know, to game things, to get everyone used to the logistics uh, of war. Um, so that... What was it? What was it like? The thing that I found most difficult about it was actually a thing I find dif- difficult about many things was that what was said that we were doing there is not actually what we were doing there. If we were training in a very gung-ho way, I think I would have been overjoyed. But what would often happen is that we'd do some sort of training theater. We'd go out there and basically pretend to train with no tight feedback. It's like if if you have a soccer team or something like that, and you do training, but you never have some sort of opposing force. And when there is some sort of opposing force, your team captain gets really mad about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the, the frustrating part. So it seemed at the time a little pointless uh, to do what we were doing, though in retrospect, I can say that you know that kind of chaos and that kind of frustration is good training in and of itself. So you think the function of it wasn't the training per se, but the function of it was just to put you in a chaotic environment and be like, figure it out, endure it. Um, you you got to get through this. And the getting through it is the training itself. Yes. Okay. And my the second part of my question was, so when you lashed out and punched this guy in the face, you like you were hungry and you didn't have enough sleep. Do you think there was like a threat going through your mind? Like somebody was challenging you? Or was it kind of like, a, like an anger or irritation? So it definitely felt closer to irritation, like I need to get this stuff done fast and this person is delaying me and he's delaying us, so I'm going to punish him. That was the string that was in my mind as far as I can remember it. It's so strange when we do things that are atypical. In the moment, it seems like there's not no other choice, but it seems as if it's, it's the clearly right thing to do. Sometimes I guess it's that like animal portion of our brain just takes over and and reacts in such an intuitive way that, like you said, it's almost shocking to us because we're so used to being in the driver's seat. Yeah, that was definitely very shocking. And I think it's part of what has also 
helped me go through this cycle of constantly trying to figure out what I'm hiding from myself or why I would hide anything from myself in the first place. So you went into this this fighting and you said you were getting your ass handed to you. Now, do you think that a part of that decision was to punish yourself? Or do you think it was that you wanted to learn and, and get tougher? What what was the main driving force? I actually don't know because unlike a lot of decisions that I've made as an adult or even as a teenager that are like extremely over considered and overwrought, um, this was this one that I sort of just decided on a dime. Yeah. You once wrote that whenever you use a memory of a past action to justify hurting yourself, you weaken your will. It seems like there might have been a connection between you lashing out and getting violent and recognizing something in yourself. And I assume that you weren't using that to justify you putting this yourself in this situation where you might come to physical harm. But do you think there was any connection there? Yeah. Um, and, and the reason why I'm like absolutely certain that was is because there were very few things at that time in my life that probably wouldn't fit that like even at the time i was gaming i was also drinking a lot uh, so the kind of the that time after i hit that person the year after i drank every day and i think that a lot of that was some sort of self punishment interesting so in the tweet you said that this action weakens your will in what way does using past action to justify hurting yourself weaken your will so it sets up an internal conflict where there is a part that is punishing and that is a part that is taking the punishment and and, and that part is going to sort of have this sort uh, internal resentment and i would guess that a lot of times when i have parts that take over in the same way that I punched that person later in life, I've done other things very suddenly that seem like very right in the time. It's kind of as a, as a strong reaction to some punishment like this in, in the past where I've actively hurt myself or suppressed myself. And then one day it all kind of comes out. Wow. So you went through this fighting regimen tournament. I, I don't completely understand what that was. Tell me a little bit about that. At least in this division in the army that I was in, there were sports competitions every year. And one of those competitions was a combative um, tournament. And this is basically where they split a bunch of guys into weight classes. And you are given a, a set amount of time to get the other person to submit. And at the at the broader level, at the lower level, you cannot use strikes. But once you get to the semifinals and the finals, you can use strikes. So how far along did you get? I, I was kicked out right in the beginning. I definitely <laughs> did not get to this, the, the semifinals. Mm. What was your takeaway from that entire experience? So you'd been drinking for a while and you go into this tournament. Uh, what What happened after that? So part of the takeaway was that a, I, I enjoyed it. Like it was, it felt very comfortable to me. And looking back, I've I've had trouble fitting in a lot of times. And uh, there's this concept of rhythm, and I've always had trouble fitting in with other people's rhythms. But I've kind of always had an easy time disrupting it. 
And so I think this was a setting where that was the goal. So when I got to do that, even, even when I lost, I could tell that I disrupted the rhythm of the people who, who beat me. And that was kind of, um, it felt empowering in a way. Like, yes, I, I got my ass kicked, but I got into the other person's head. And I think that set up some sort of association with, with this as an activity that I might want to pursue in the future. Uh, the other part of it is that my unit became like really proud of me in a way that I would never have expected. So it seems like you can take advantage of someone or, or manipulate someone by getting into their rhythm. And it sounds like that has a lot to do with a lot of our interactions with one another and our interactions with, with life. So for instance, we were talking about um, sex and violence and they're intimate and how there's a state of uh, flow going on. It seems like the way that we interact and upset someone or surprise someone, it, it seems to have connections with everything, like in humor, a lot of the time, right? There's that setup where you get somebody into a flow and then you chop it and that surprise creates a laugh. And so it really seems to suffuse everything. And how do you apply that to, to the rest of your life? Yeah, so... Part of the obsession with trust, I think, is becomes an obsession with this rhythm wherever I find it. You know, humor, dance, conversation, just relating with other people in general. I would say that a lot of my time is spent on figuring out how people deal with these rhythms, how they interact with each other through them. I spend a lot of time observing other people's relationships uh, because it gives me kind of the, the distance to observe. And uh, lately, I guess in the, in the last two or three years, I've also kind of applied it to improving my own relationships to give or to, to create enough space in me so that when someone else's rhythm is around, I can just like let it come into me. Um, more easily than I did in the past. That's very interesting. And it strikes me that not being able to resonate these rhythms with other people or, or have our rhythms interacting with other people may be a cause for depression where we're, we're, we're seeking to create some kind of uh, interaction with others and we don't get that back. And then people fall into depression some of the time. And you once wrote that wanting to save the world is a mark of depression. And that seems to tie into this. Do you have any thoughts on that about how rhythms might interact with depression and why wanting to save the world is, is an example of that? I would wholly agree that generally speaking, we really want to, to be in rhythm with the people around us. And when that starts to fail, when that starts to become difficult, that's when uh, depression happens. And I suspect that it happens so that the individual is sort of forced to isolate themselves. When I think about my own depressive periods, I'm forced to isolate myself in order to figure out what my rhythm is and how it fits in with everyone else's rhythm, because I've sort of lost step or I've lost the beat right, in terms of where everyone else is. And I sense that a lot of times when people want to save the world in a very broad way, it's because they are 
counting out a lot of everyone else's rhythm. So because they are counting out a lot of everyone else's rhythm, they cannot fully follow the world's rhythm. And so they assume that, think about it as a symphony, one part of the symphony is somehow good and the other part of the symphony is somehow bad, the part that they are no longer um, dancing to. And so they're trying to impose that the part they do have access to on everyone else Huh. It's kind of like they're trying to tyrannize the world in a certain way. They're, they're cutting off the edges of the sculpture in order to shape it into their own idolin and what they think it should be. Um, and in doing so, their rhythm may just kind of fall out of line and their rhythm might not resonate with anyone. And that can create antisocial behavior. Yes. And I was also going to add that that actually kind of ties back into the um, earlier thing about egregores and cringing in that not only are they doing it to each other, they, they would also be doing it to themselves. Right, absolutely. Because you can't tyrannize others without also tyrannizing yourself. Yes. Now, I don't know much about uh, Sufism. You, we mentioned that briefly when you were talking about comfort practice and, and uh, its origination in, in religion. Do you have a lot of practice with with Sufism or is it strictly uh, this comfort play? So I don't have a lot of direct practice because I have not found a Sufist group that I can go practice with. Most of my experience with Sufism comes as uh, as an like as a scholarly observer, uh, just reading translations of most of the Sufist works. And what have you gotten from that? So at any given point, I think we can explain the rest of the world in terms of whatever we're focused on in the moment, because everything is sort of interdependent. And Sufism seems to do this with love. When I say love, I think I would agree with this definition at this point that brought most in, in its broadest sense it's union so the 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 joining of parts into a whole um and sufism emphasizes this more than any other philosophical line that i've delved into um i think the the thing that i took away from it on top of that is is also the feeling of god in us so that God is not just out there, but we are a part of God, kind of manifesting ourselves. Sufism is based on um, mysticism of Islam. And this reminds me of, uh, in the Bible, for instance, God creates the angels and then he creates man. So he shapes the angels, but he breathes life into man. And in doing that, Genesis is explaining that men are part God, right? We're part divine. That's the, our humanness is this part of God that exists within us. And so Jesus, for example, was part divine, but so are we. So I think of this sometimes where, um, of course, Jesus, Jesus is not um, in Islam as in the same way that he's in Christianity. But if you think of Jesus as an excellent example or Muhammad as an excellent example of what a human can be, I feel like um, that's a very interesting way of talking about this divine portion of humanity. Yes. So uh, the part of Sufism that stuck out to me 
now even more, even though like I, I was raised Christian, I've been a lot, around a lot of Christians throughout my life. You know, Christianity talks a lot about love and a personal relationship with God, especially if you're Protestant. But I don't think it quite captures the the level of personal in personal relationship with God that that Sufism seems to capture. The sort of it's not even like a regular relationship. It's like an intense romance with all of reality. So what is what does that feel like? What is the practice like when you say intense romance? You're you're talking about a lot of ideas here about union, how that's part of love, and then there's also romance. Like, how, what's your perspective on love, and what is the practice like when you're inhabiting that love? So I actually encountered it when I was having sex sometimes at, at the same time that I was uh, reading a lot of Sufi poems. And typically in prayer, when you pray, you are using that as a sort of uh, narrow channel to to deal with with God or to experience God. Um, it's not that you can't find God anywhere else. It's that this is a, a sort of uh, specific path that you can use kind of like training wheels to, to experience God. Um, and I think through Sufism, I ended up doing that in sex. And I think in order to be like a decent lover, you generally want to take, you want to take in the person as a whole. And this kind of <laughs> ties back into being a decent fighter as well. You can't fixate on any one part of them or they might disrupt you. And if a person is a reflection of reality, then in order to fully connect to them, I'm going to have to connect with all of reality. And somehow, when I was having sex during this time, I realized that I could do that, that I could have this, this feeling of connection to the trees outside, to, you know, the people on the other side of the world, to uh, the clouds in the sky. Why do you think it was sex that triggered that? Like, do you, do you think it just happened to be sex? Or was there a specific reason that was the entry point into this more globalized experience of love? I believe that it has to do probably like specifically with where I was mentally at the time and where I've been in my 20s. I was a very materialist person, I would say. And by materialist, I mean focusing on some sort of uh, materialist reductionism, like everything is, is, you know, physical atoms and so on in a very doctrinal way, like a strongly atheist. The beginning of coming out of that was going fully into a sort of hedonism, uh, like an egoist hedonism. And I think that focus of sort of maximizing pleasure led me to being more open in areas that that were like more direct forms of pleasure, such as sex or food. And it happened at the time that sex was the vehicle that I used, though I think a lot of traditional Sufis would probably not encourage that kind of thing, because then you might get too attached to the that symbol of the physical act as opposed to the, the thing behind it. We have comfort play, and we have Sufism, and all of this creates a kind of central theory of Ray, which is that you're you're seeking to interact with reality in this very true and authentic way. My question is, if the listeners are curious about how they can get 
better at doing that. Are there any practices that you have or that you would suggest or any um, you know websites that people should go to or any books they should read in order to tap into this more universal love that, that you seem to be able to enter into? So the complicated thing about this is it really is dependent on each individual person. And I have found that everyone has within them something that they can use. And, you know, in the same way that I was using sex at that time, um, someone has some way that they connect with, with, with each other in, in, a, in this sort of transcendent way that they can start. And, you know, that might just be playing board games with someone, which is why I think it's, it's kind of different for everyone else. So one thing I would suggest doing as opposed to looking anything up or reading anything is trying to pay broad, diffuse attention to the people around you for at least 10 minutes longer than you normally would per day. It's like a kind of meditation, like a social meditation. Yeah. So instead of focusing on the object level of what someone is saying or what you're saying um, or, you know, an interaction like it could even be with with a cashier or, you know, you're buying something at a restaurant and so on, just kind of paying attention to that person and the place they're in and imagining what it's like to be them. That seems to touch on or overlap a little bit with what Michael Ashcroft talks about with the Alexander Technique, about becoming more aware of everything, including the stuff that's behind your head and the room and what's outside that room and the people and the movement and everything like that. Um, So it's so interesting to see how people come from very different backgrounds and have very different life experiences and yet seem to often settle on concepts that are very similar, which I absolutely love. Now, I wanted to ask you about your poetry, because on your profile, you do share some of your poetry. Um, So is that something you do often? Why do you share that? And what what kind of use is that to you? So I share it specifically because it scares me to share it. And I engage in poetry when I have no other choice. When you have no other choice, tell me what that means. So there are times when like feelings are just extremely strong and there's like a lot of them. And at times I might be able to express them with a dance or, you know, like in in a sparring match or something like that. But there are times that seem to call for words. And I often call it word vomit because these words will just tumble out of me. And after that's done, it feels like there were these things that I was like kind of keeping down that have been allowed out and then they can get integrated and expressed in my everyday life, but not before I kind of do this ritual of uh, throwing these words up on, on a screen. So you're saying we have these emotions or, or these ideas, um, something that we need to express inside of us, but everything that we have has a kind of way that it needs to be expressed, which makes a lot of sense to me because from that light, you can kind of interpret creative people like musicians or painters or anything else as containing a kind of flavor of emotion that expresses itself in a certain kind of way and that they just happen to have, for instance, a a very visual way of expressing themselves. But if we don't explore 
these ways of our expressing ourselves, we could be bottling something up that may become explosive. Absolutely. That's phenomenal. I love that. Can you share with me some books that you've like really loved or you found especially useful um, that you think other people should read? Or if not books, articles, you mentioned the Sufi poems, anything that people might dig into that may benefit their life. So I'd actually recommend looking at whatever pop culture or historical stories most resonated with them and rereading that with a mind to how to live. Because I believe that most stories are primarily about how to live. They're kind of one of the ways that I would say egregores disseminate. And if they're reread from that point of view, then you can find like deep principles and lessons that, you know, we as humans all converge on, like you said earlier, that you might not have otherwise. And, and the reason why I'm saying that partially is because I actually believe that for me, a lot of uh, superhero comics are like this. And if you if you ever want to read one, I would recommend Mr. Miracle by Tom King, because it addresses a lot of the uh, concepts we went over here. I love that. Instead of looking everywhere for um, a new answer, what you do is you revisit something that is already salient to you, that's already expressed itself as important to you, and you invest in it, you invest time and attention, because if it became salient to you, then it must reflect something that's already deep inside of you. In the same way that if a woman appears to me as extremely salient, then that says something about my tastes and about what I care about in a woman and what I'm attracted to. So it says a lot about me when something piques my interests or, or I get involved with something. So I love that. That's a wonderful recommendation. So finally, is there anything that any practices you have or, or any perspective you have that you find extremely useful? We've covered so many wonderful things. I just want to give you the floor to share anything that you think might be important. So this is connected to the practice I suggested earlier of paying attention to someone, but I'm actually going to go and suggest something a little more intense, a little further, not a full comfort play, but if there's anyone you care about, sit in front of them and stare them in the eyes without talking for at least 15 minutes. That's very intimate. So would you say you should do that with, with everybody you care about? How do you introduce that as a thing that you should do with someone else? Like, how can I sell that to somebody? It could be family, friends, anybody, anybody that's close to you. How, how do we get them to engage in that way? So I think the best way is actually to start doing it uh, without on your side, without them quite realizing that you're doing it. But as you're doing it, actually um, appreciate whatever you find. So if you can do that, if you can look them in the eyes and sincerely accept and appreciate what you're finding, eventually they will start looking back. And, you know, that might take weeks, months, years, but they will start looking back eventually. And once they notice it, once they're like, oh, wow, we've had this moment maybe for two minutes, not 15 then that's a good time to be like, hey, do you want to do you want to like actually do this for 15 minutes? 
So that's like the opposite of coercion, right? Because you're constantly inviting them, inviting them, inviting them without even telling them. So I speak sometimes about how manipulation um, and communication are the same thing. But this is actually making me question that because in doing this inviting non-verbally, you're creating a, a gap for them to enter into completely of their own volition. Um, so actually, I'm, I have a lot to think about after this episode. But you know, Ray, it's been great having you. If you want to share any of your information where people can find you and you can share causes you care about, anything you want to talk about. I guess there's one cause that I really care about, and that is for everyone to trust themselves. Um, I hope that if you look in the mirror sometime, that you give as much space as possible to what you find there. That's so beautiful. Thanks for coming on, Ray. This has been really great. I really enjoy talking with Ray. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe to future episodes and read show notes on my blog, www.becomingcreature.substack.com. You can find Ray at F-O-R-Shaper on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at BecomingCritter. Feel free to say hi. I'd love to hear from you. Our intro music was mixed by Frank Ivey. This has been A Becoming Creature, and we hope you enjoyed. <laughs>